Well, welcome back, Los Angeles, to another episode of the Apologetics.com radio show where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. My name is Jason Gallagher, and I will be with you alongside my wonderful guest, the good doctor, Eddie Anorga. Eddie, how are you tonight? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Eddie is a regular contributor to Apologetics.com and and really just a regular contributor to uh, my personal life and uh, walk as a Christian in the area of apologetics. Always been a huge encouragement to me, um, you know, having conversations and discussions and always willing to uh, throw around different ideas about the Bible and theology and apologetics and everything related to that. So uh, I really appreciate Dr. Eddie and... Um, I wanted to, I just heard on the intro to the show that this is actually our 20th anniversary of Apologetics.com being on KKLA uh, for 20 years. And I just want to say thank God, thank the Lord, praise the Lord for that, praise the Lord for his faithfulness um, for all those years. Harry Edwards, he is the founder of Apologetics.com, and he is, you know, the reason why this ministry exists, he had this vision 20 years ago to just start a website dedicated to apologetics. And, um, you know, we got the best name in town, apologetics.com. It doesn't get much better than that um, when you're trying to uh, look up apologetics and and learn about it. And so we just want to thank God and remind you guys that this is a listener-supported ministry. We are all volunteers who come on the show, the regular hosts, uh, myself and Jonathan Noyes and Harry Edwards and Leslie Wickman, we come on here. We all have full-time jobs outside of uh, the studio here, but we love to just be here each Friday to bring you guys topics related to apologetics and answer your questions and engage with you and talk with you. Um, so thank you for your faithful faithful giving over the years, for supporting us, and if you want to de- uh, donate uh, the end of the year is coming up. We would be completely blessed if you chose to give a little bit to this ministry. You could go online, apologetics.com, and it is a very simple to give through our website there um, if the Lord leads you in that direction. We are a live show, so we love interacting with our callers. Uh, really, any question you have related to apologetics, the Bible, theology, we'd love to interact with you. And uh, tonight's topic is going to be on presuppositional apologetics and giving some definitions, some biblical framework for presuppositional apologetics and how it really works itself out in our day to day lives. You know, it kind of might seem like somewhat of an esoteric idea or more of just a philosophical approach to apologetics. And we want to try and show you guys how it really touches on every aspect of our lives um, and works itself out in the world around us. And so hopefully Dr. Eddie and I will be up to that challenge tonight. We are also live on Facebook If you want to join us there, you could submit questions, and we will be looking there uh, to try and answer them. Or you can call us. Uh, I'm going to throw out the number, so jot this down. It's 888-995-KKLA, 888-995-5552. And so 
just getting into our topic here, I wanted to kind of share with you guys an encouraging resource that I came across. Well, the resource has been around for a while. It's um, it's basically dedicated to Greg Bonson and his teachings. It's the Covenant Media Foundation, cmfnow.com. Um, there's a ton of resources on there that you can avail yourself of, lectures and sermons, um, and also just various articles. And this this particular resource I came across a couple weeks ago isn't necessarily an article. It's actually a list of sample questions for a presbytery apologetics exam. So if any of you guys are <laughs> interested in uh, challenging yourself with a presbytery-level apologetics exam, uh, you can go on that website, and it's 225 questions all related to the topic of apologetics. And they're, they're all written out by Dr. Greg Bonson. And this is, these are questions that they would ask, ask someone who is actually in the process of being ordained uh, to be a pastor in the Presbyterian Church. And uh, it's broken down into six major categories, which are the nature of apologetics, biblical and theological foundations for apologetics, history and problems of philosophy, method of apologetics, schools and issues, presuppositionalism in apologetics, and finally, specific problems calling for apologetical answer. And, you know, each question challenges you just to dig into the Bible and to to give some serious thought to the whole topic of apologetics, what we're doing, what it is, why we do it, and so on and so forth. And um, so please avail yourself of that resource. And with that being said, I wanted to just kind of kick off our conversation tonight talking kind of broadly about apologetics, just providing a little bit of a framework. And so I will throw it over to the good doctor, Eddie. And Eddie, give some introductory uh, definitions, framework for what does the term apologetics mean? You know, what is the aim and the purpose of apologetics? And is it is it really necessary, you know? Well, apologetics is frequently translated in the Bible as defense. And it, uh, it's a combination of two words in Greek or two uh, syllables, apo and logos. So it's onto or towards or leading to the truth or the logos would be the meaning and truth behind all things. So our goal in apologetics is to lead people to a saving knowledge of God. So that would be kind of the, the big picture idea of apologetics. And the Bible teaches us to be always ready to give an answer or a defense or an apologetic for the hope that is in us. So on a cultural level, we need to be prepared. We also, the Bible also tells us that we need to, um, that we're, we're in this, this battle of ideas that we don't battle in flesh and blood and that we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and to, we're to destroy arguments that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. So that word there, arguments, is logismos or lines of reasoning or, or you know, other attempts to bring meaning and sense into reality. And finally, within our own church community, you know, Jude tells us that we're to contend for the faith that, that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Mm -hmm. So we do apologetics in our own mind when a challenging idea comes. We're to, we're to take it, think it through, and put it um, 
you know, under the authority of God. And then uh, we're just doing the church community, and then we're also to do it in the community at large. Yeah, I would also, I would just echo that. I would also point to First uh, Peter three fifteen and 16, which is kind of one of the, you know, charter verses of apologetics where the word apologia is found. Um, and it simply says, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And, you know, an additional aspect of this, you know, in addition to what Eddie said, is um, I think Oz Guinness kind of looks at apologetics as pre-evangelism in the sense that it's, you know, it's part of the evangelistic process in clearing away obstacles whether they be, you know, mental obstacles, you know, questions, um, you know, related to maybe moral or intellectual issues um, that people might have, questions about the nature and character of God or, you know, suffering and evil and those sorts of things, right? There's apologetics where you could kind of approach all those sorts of topics or stumbling blocks and help clear away, you know, the brush uh, to help people see the path towards God more clearly, right? Um, and also to provide respectable questions that help the unbeliever examine their own worldview, because many people are walking around with this hardened soil. They have these collections of ideas that seem to be impermeable to the gospel. Mm-hmm. And when you ask certain questions that point out uh, the limitations of their underlying worldview commitments, then they have to stop and rethink, well, maybe I don't understand reality as well as I ought to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and asking good questions is something, you know, we see, I think, you know, Jesus doing a lot of, right? You know, they might bring a question or something trying to trap him, and he'll just respond with a simple question sometimes. And what it does is it kind of forces the person to uh, consider and realize their own either faulty assumptions or maybe hypocritical assumptions, you know, um, without even giving any long argument, but simply asking the right question a lot of times can simply, um, you know, cause someone to realize the error of their ways. Can you think of a way, you know, a simple way you might do that, Eddie, like um, an example of asking a good question that exposes someone's own presuppositions um, about the world, maybe? Great. Yeah, that brings us to, like, right at one of the cores of presuppositional apologetics is that perhaps, you know, somebody makes a comment about what you ought to do or what's good, and we would just want to ask, well, how do we know that that's good? Mm -hmm. You know, by what standard would we determine whether a particular activity or, you know, action is good? Mm -hmm. Or why would I have an obligation to do anything, you know, or do what you say that I ought to do or what I should do. Mm -hmm. So those would all fall into the category of ethics or obligations, you know, that I have some kind of moral obligation to do something. Mm -hmm. So that's frequently a good starting point, uh, you know, try and help understand by what standard 
would you judge that something's good or an evil? Mm-hmm. And this goes all the way back to Genesis. You know, this mm-hmm. was something that, you know, was at the foundational battleground is has to do with this knowledge of good and evil. You know, how is it that I know that my actions and my thoughts today will lead me to some future good outcome or unfavorable outcome? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you mentioned Genesis. Um and scripture, I think, is going to be a big part of our conversation tonight as we discuss presuppositional apologetics. Um, can you point to two or three New Testament texts which kind of directly bear on the theory and practice of apologetics and maybe that you use in your own approach to apologetics? So I I personally like the presuppositional approach, and actually you mentioned— uh, First Peter three fifteen, but right before uh, the part that you said, it says, "Sanctify the Lord, your God." You know, and so that means set apart. You know, so in your thinking, we have to set apart God as the ultimate authority uh, for our reasoning and for our apologetic. Also, Paul begins his his book of Romans with, "I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of God to salvation." And in that, I would say that that salvation includes the restoration of all things to the way they ought to be, Mm -hmm. Uh, that it's not limited, which is a great thing. It's not limited to our individual salvation and eternal life, but it's directed at restoring all things to the way they want to be. So that the gospel, the word of God in the broad sense, is has the, the, the capability of restoring all things to the way they ought to be. Amen. Yeah, I I love that aspect of uh, the gospel of uh, the kingdom. You know, um, Mark 16, 15 says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, or some translations say preach the gospel to all creation. And I think part of what that's getting at is that all creation is under a curse, right? All creation... Uh, is subject to the fall in the garden um, when Adam sinned. And and Romans tells us that all creation is groaning. And so the gospel of the kingdom, right, God's justice and God's righteousness, in addition to God's salvation of his people, is really going to redeem everything, you know. Um, you yeah, know, that man would have a restorative side, you know. demi- dominion over the creation, you know, that mm-hmm. our, we would use our resources, our intellect, and God's word mm-hmm. in, a, and in order to restore the things of the creation. And, and so a couple, a couple other scriptures that I like to point to is Colossians 2.3, which tells us that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, right? So if anyone's going to know anything, if anyone's going to have any wisdom, it all starts, it's all hidden in Christ, right? Um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Um, Ephesians 6 tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we're in this spiritual battle. Um, 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us that we are to take every thought captive uh, to the obedience of Christ, right? We destroy arguments, right? Do you like to argue, Eddie? I mean, is is apologetics all about arguing? Is it just a bunch of mean, angry people that like to argue and <laughs> yeah? Well, know, I mean, the yell at people or you know, because there's the broad sense of the word, you know, is right. that we're pre- presenting uh, lines of reasoning and 
hopefully we're doing that in a uh, calm and effective way. Like Peter says, right? With gentleness mm -hmm. and meekness and much respect, right? Mm -hmm. um, Paul argued a lot in the book of Acts, you know. Yeah. He was he constantly reasoned, arguing, reasoning, with, debating. From the scriptures. Yeah. Corinthians, he, we persuade men. And so, know, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Absolutely. And, and so those are all texts that we use to kind of bring um, to bear as we approach apologetics. Um, you know, Philippians 1.7 says that um, Paul was thankful for the church because they participated in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Um, and so... And so finally, you know, we want to make sure that all of our apologetics is not simply um, just argument for the sake of argument. But like Eddie said, it's, um, you know, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Are you suggesting that we do all things for the glory of God? I think I've heard that somewhere. Yeah, yeah, Romans 11, right? Um, for from him and to him and through him um, are all things, you know, to yeah, him be the glory forever and ever. Amen, yeah. right? I'll do all things um, for the glory of God. And so the ultimate goal is redemption, is eternal life, salvation for people, um, changed hearts, changed minds. Um, and so with that, let's get a little bit more into the, the nitty-gritty of presuppositionalism in apologetics as a methodology, right? Because there's, there's different schools of apologetics, right? Um, right. There's various ideas. One is classical, which would be reason, then faith. Mm -hmm. You know, evidential would be evidence and then faith. Um, fideism would be faith with no reason. Mm -hmm. And presuppositionalism might be looked at as faith, therefore reason. You know, that we begin, you know, our starting point is a trying God of Scripture, which is a really important point when thinking about presuppositional apologetics. It is, Fre okay. Frequently presuppositional apologetics is... Uh, challenged by a straw man form, mm -hmm. which would be a bald presuppositionalism. Mm -hmm. But what, you know, the presuppositional apologists in the line of Van Til, Bonson, Frame, and so forth, you know, they, they are saying that unless you presuppose the triune God of Scripture, you cannot make sense of reality. You know, that, mm -hmm. that that's our presupposition. You can't just plug in something else. So some people will say, oh, presupposition, well, I'm just going to presuppose, you know, the invisible pink unicorn, mm -hmm. you know. Well, the invisible pink unicorn does not carry within itself the necessary conditions to make sense of reality. He hasn't revealed himself in such a way that you can now know truthfully and with certainty the important questions about reality, where we came from, why we're here how it is that we're right. going to live our lives, right, right, right. and what's going to happen after we die. Right. So a simple question you might ask someone, well, how, how has that invisible pink unicorn revealed itself to you? Right. Right. And, you know, um, you know how, do you, how, do, how, does, how does he speak to you, you know, and reveal truth to you and things like that? Because when people do that, what they're doing is they're just – they're just trying to throw out something absurd, you know, for the sake of trying to uh, trying to maybe maybe think that uh, you're doing the same thing, mm -hmm. right? Right, and then, and one of the other critiques uh, that's answered by my comment is that presuppositionalism uh, entails some degree of subjectivism, 
And mm-hmm. again, a, a, a bald presuppositionalism that we talked about that where you can just plug in anything as your presupposition uh, would be subjectivist. But we're saying objectively mm-hmm. that the triune God of Scripture is our concrete objective standard you know, by which we base all things. You know, the revelation of the mm-hmm. triune God of Scripture is the standard by which we judge and think about all things. It's where we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And that is ultimate objectivism. So let's define presupposition. Great. We've been, just... we've been throwing that around a bunch. <laughs> what is meant by a presupposition? Well, here um, I have Greg Monson's uh, pushing the antithesis, where he's okay. quoting another book that he wrote, Van Til's Apologetic. He says, a presupposition is an elementary assumption in one's reasoning or in the process by which opinions are formed. It is not just any assumption. It is an argument in an, in an argument. It is not just any assumption in an argument, but a personal commitment that is held at the most basic level of one's network of beliefs. Presuppositions form a wide-ranging foundational perspective or starting point in terms of which everything else is interpreted and evaluated. As such, presuppositions have the greatest authority in one's thinking, being treated as one's least negotiable beliefs and being granted the highest immunity to revision. Okay. So again, these are important ideas at the foundation of our thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, foundational, I heard you say, of first importance. Um, he said the least negotiable, negotiable beliefs. He said those things by which things are interpreted. Mm-hmm. Right? So um, does everybody have these presuppositions? Um, does, every, every, does everybody do have you, them? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everybody has them. And some right. people aren't even aware of them. You right. know, some people are completely agnostic to their foundational commitments. Because you could ask someone, hey, what are your presuppositions? And they'll be like, what are you talking about? What's a presupposition? Mm-hmm. They might not even understand what that term means, but that doesn't mean they don't have presuppositions, right? Yeah. And, um, and one kind of way of thinking about presuppositional apologetics is that we're, we're uh, engaging the unbeliever at the worldview level. Mm-hmm. You know, It's like, what are their foundational beliefs about what exists, what's right and wrong, and how they justify their knowledge of those things. Right. Um, I'm going to throw out our number again in case you missed it at the start of the show. It's 888-995-KKLA. It's 888-995-5552. And I'm going to go over to a caller real quick. I'm going to go over to Matt from Los Angeles. has a question about the Trinity. Matt, how you doing tonight? Doing well. How you doing? Good. Um it says you have a question about the Trinity. I do. So my question is, you said earlier that you need to presuppose the triune God to make sense of reality. Is that right? Yes, correct. So I'm curious why you need to presuppose that God is triune rather than, you know, like why couldn't a Unitarian God uh, be a good foundation for making sense of reality? Oh, great question. question. That's a great question. So uh, there are certain characteristics of uh, the triune God of Scripture 
that actually have to do with the question of the one and the many. So you know, the, the problem or the question of the one of the many has been a, a problem for philosophers all the way back to Plato and uh, Aristotle. So what they're looking at is like, what's ultimate? You know, Plato said the forms are ultimate, where Aristotle said, no, the particulars are ultimate. And, uh, you know, so this, this idea of the one and the many, you know, how is it that we come to this relationship between particulars and universals? And we do that anytime we speak, when we predicate, anytime we do history, anytime we, you know, uh, 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 talk about laws um, and those types of things. So this problem of the one of the many has plagued secular philosophy uh, since the time of Plato and Aristotle. But the one of the many has its grounding in the triune God of Scripture. You know, that within the triune God of Scripture is the resolution and the origin of unity and diversity. Um, so even in our culture, you know, it's like, how do we unify diverse people? You know, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. You know, the way that we unify them is under a common, transcendent, objective, revealed truth. And so, um, you know, that would be an example of the one and the many. A Unitarian God within itself would not have that one and the many. That would be one aspect. The other aspect has to do with the incarnation. And finally, um, you know, the, the, uh, the fact that, that God himself has paid for our sins. You know, that God himself has paid for our sins. So those are those would be kind of various categories in which to to uh, to approach this idea of a unitarian God versus a triune God. Okay, so the problem of the one and the many seems I don't know like an odd thing because typically we understand the problem of the one and the many to mean there are different substances that we say have kind of a uniting factor. Um, but with God, we would say that God is only one substance. And so how, how, do you, how do you see that God being one substance is, is solving the problem of the one and the many? Because God is three persons and one God. You know, so it's the grounding, it's the source of, it's the, the person who has the capacity to create the one and many because it resides within itself. It's a, it's a quality that resides within himself. Any it's thoughts? Kind of, it's kind of the, the concept of diversity. Right, that, that God is three persons and one God. So it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he is one God. It seems like a categorical error to make an kind of an analogy between the one and the many and the way, kind of the problem with the one and the many, I guess you could say, and the way in which God is one versus how God is many. Yeah. Right, so meaning when we say there's three different trees, they share, they share 
the same substantial form of uh, treeness, but then they are actually three different substances, whereas God is one substance. And so it's not that they're, they share oh. some different substantial forms. Matt, I hear some music in the background. Uh, would, you, would you be willing to hang on over a commercial break and we could follow up with this after the break? Yeah, no problem. All right, cool. Appreciate it. We will be uh, right back with the question about the Trinity after these important messages. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Everyone has ideas about God. Unfortunately, many people hold false ideas about Him. And these ideas have consequences. Some false ideas have led people to worship a God of their own making, while others have led people to reject God altogether. This year, we've devoted an entire conference to answering the most common false ideas about God. Is God anti-gay? Is God good? Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? These are just a few of the topics we'll be addressing. The only way to guard against false ideas is to fill our minds with true ideas. So join me and a number of other speakers at one of this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences. Find out more information about Rethink by going to RethinkApologetics.com. That's RethinkApologetics.com. We're at war. It's not a war of bombs and bayonets. It's not a war against flesh and blood. In fact, it's not a physical war at all. It's a spiritual war. That's why Paul instructs us to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil's primary scheme is deception. He wants us to believe false ideas about God. And the only way to guard against false ideas is to fill our minds with true ideas. Simply put, we combat deception with truth. It's unfathomable to imagine sending young men and women off to fight a physical war without proper training. Yet, when it comes to spiritual warfare, we do this all the time. The vast majority of our students are simply not prepared for the spiritual battle that awaits them. At this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences, we're training students to counter the lies of the enemy. Lies like God does not exist, God is anti-gay, Muslims and Christians worship the same God are just a few of the false ideas we'll be addressing. So join me and a number of other speakers at one of this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences. Find out more information about Rethink by going to RethinkApologetics.com. That's RethinkApologetics.com. The mission of Apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Apologetics.com radio show. My name is Jason Gallagher. We are in the second half hour of our show. Uh, tonight I am in studio with the good doctor, Eddie, Eddie Norga, 
and we are discussing presuppositional apologetics, some of the theological framework for it. And the second half of the show, we would kind of like to get into some of like where where this actually, where the rubber hits the road in presuppositional apologetics and how it is worked out in the lives of people. But uh, before we do that, we wanted to get back to our caller, Matt from L.A. He had a question about the Trinity, a good question about the Trinity. So the basic presupposition that we were stating is that unless you presuppose the triune God of Scripture, you can't make sense of reality. And Matt had a good question. Well, why is it necessarily a triune God? Why cannot why can it not be a a Unitarian God? And so, Matt, are you still on the air with us? Matt, are you there? Can you hear us? Yeah. Can you hear me? All right. There cool. Yeah. There you are. Um, so, you know, one thing I would just want to add to the conversation, and I, Matt, are you? Do you go to Branch of Hope? <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> All right. I thought I recognized your voice, man. Good to hear from you, dude. Are you just playing devil's advocate, or are you trying to deconstruct the presuppositional apologetic in general? <laughs> <laughs> I So I appreciate presuppositional apologetics to an extent. Yeah, yeah. But I do believe that saying that you need to presuppose a triune God, uh, specifically a triune God, is is not a I think I think it just falls short. I don't think it can be maintained. Okay. All right. Well, I'm sorry, he says this, I'm gonna say it's a he, fall, so what? he believes falls it falls short, short right? It, it can't short. it can't okay. be completely maintained. Um and so I, I would just in response I think we started initially talking about the ontological the ontological grounding of the one and the many and unity and diversity. And then as far as the economic trinity goes, it's a it's an it's an exemplification of how it is that we're to be relational, you know, that, uh, that, that, you know, a lot of uh, apologetics has to do as well. How is it that we love our neighbor? And so we get an example of that through the economic Trinity, that there's this loving relationship between the members of the Trinity and that that gives us also the example and that loving relationship is laid out in the history of redemption. And so again, in those two qualities, this, uh, you know, the, 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 that, uh, of course you, I'm sure, I hope you agree that God is Trinitarian and not, not, uh, not Unitarian, right? I, I absolutely do. And so, and so, so the God that we're defending and protecting is a triune God of scripture. And in Van Til, he makes his argument of predication, you know, that whenever we're saying something about a subject, we're trying to to uh, unite the one and the many. And in order to do that, we have to presuppose a relationship between the one and the many, and that ultimately comes from the triumph God of Scripture. Apart from a triumph God of Scripture, we have brute facts. You know, we have facts that are uninterpreted. And uh, uh, again, at least in the underbelievers' uh, mindset, that they cannot be connected. Cannot The, the connection for the one and many cannot be justified. The unbeliever does connect the one and the many, but he doesn't have a justification or a grounding for his understanding of the one and the many. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll, let me ask one more question, uh, and then I'll stop bothering you guys. Sure. I want to say also, I, I appreciate what you guys do. I listen 
regularly when I when I see Jason post about it and just yeah, want to say uh, appreciate what you guys are doing. Um, oh, thanks, man. So, my my question would be, um, why would it have to be? So, I guess to state the problem, I think if you demand that um, the Trinitarian God is necessary to make sense of anything, um, or understood as Trinity, then I think that you would need to be maintaining that you can uh, come to Trinity by rationality rather than it needing revelation. Um, and so kind of that's the problem that most, I'm, I consider myself a classical apologist, and so that's the problem that we get with theology proper, is you can come to an understanding of God um, to an extent, but we can't rationalize to the point of Trinity. Um, and so my question would be, why must it be addressing kind of the um, one in many, why does it have to be Trinity rather than Quaternity or Septernity or something? I think that I, basically, I think that it's not by reason that we say God must be Trinity, but by revelation. And thank you guys again so much for the, uh, the ministry you guys are doing, and I uh, hope you guys have a good night. Awesome, yeah. man. Yeah, that's a good point. Cool. Thanks that, for the uh, call, man. Yes, it's by revelation that we know that God is triune. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't, yeah, I would say we don't reason to the Trinity. Um, that's something that we, um, we get from Scripture. You know, kind of the starting point of the presuppositional apologetic is the uh, necessity and sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, that's one of the presuppositions. Um, you know, one of the, one of the foundational premises, you know, is, showing that biblical inerrancy must be established presuppositionally, right? Um, And so once we get to that point where you establish that the Word of God is inerrant, um, then everything that it speaks on, you know, including the Trinity, must be um, taken as authoritative. Um, You know, one more, you know, just in terms of love, I think Augustine kind of argued that... um, you know, if if you have a Unitarian God, you can never actually arrive at a a loving God, right? Because you have an all powerful God, but um, you can't have a loving God because a loving God, if he's unity, um, in you know without diversity, then there's no object for th- that God to actually express love, and so what you wind up with is uh, like a form of a dictatorship. Right, um, and that's one aspect of going about reasoning why a triune God must be um, <clears throat> the necessary uh, characteristic of God, one of them. And I think you know, quaternity, septernity, however you phrase those words, I'm, I haven't really. Yeah, know. I'm not in the business of defending imaginary gods, but you know, yeah, so that's right, again. just like the flying so, spaghetti so, monster or something, yeah, so. but. Um, I think God in his simplicity, I think three is the smallest number that logically makes sense um, to be able to express, you know, a community type love, a a genuine type of love. Um, 
And I think four or five or six, I think you would say is not logically necessary. And so that would be one way. So you are using some reason there, but ultimately your starting point is scripture. But I'm sure Matt would have a, a good a good response and thoughtful um, kind of comment uh, to that. But I'm going to throw out the number again. It's the second half of our show. If you missed the number earlier, it's 888-995-KKLA, 888-995-5552. I'm going to go over to another call from Emmy. I believe it's Emmy. Um, Emmy, you're on the air with Apologetics.com. How are you doing? I'm fine. I just wanted to make a comment about the triune God. Yes, please do. Um, the way I understand the triune God is, is to... To, to like look at an egg. Sure. An egg has a shell, the egg shell, and then it has the egg white, and then it has an egg yolk. There mm-hmm. are three parts, but it's an egg. Mm-hmm. So that's how I understand the time that is three and then one. Yeah, that, <laughs> I mean, in, in a sense, when we yeah, say egg. You know, we are understanding that, you know, all the components of the egg, you know, the particulars of the egg come together to make the concept of the egg. So when we're talking about, and when you look at any individual egg, you're also connecting it with the idea of egg, you know, the ideal of egg. And so when we're doing that, we're thinking God's thoughts after him, that God is a triune God and that... He has, uh, you know, within himself the causal capacity to create uh, unity between particulars and universals. Mm -hmm. And this is something that people are doing all day long. You know, there are constantly, you know, trying to bring particulars into contact with universals. You know, we do that when we do math, when we uh, do, you know, when we, you know, whether we're counting one, two, three ducks, or whether we're counting one, two, three cars, we're applying these universal principles of numbers and their relationships to particular objects out there. Uh, mm-hmm. which, yeah. Thank you. Now, thanks for your comment, Emmy. Okay. You're welcome. All right. Pl- call us again next week. Okay, thanks. Good night. All right, good night. So some of our ground-level things, you know, we were talking about some of these esoteric things. You know, some of our ground-level things that we wanted to get to had to do Mm -hmm. with, well, how do you get on to this idea? And we thought we'd use some everyday examples where, you know, we look at presuppositions Mm -hmm. and how we might politely engage with an unbeliever. Uh, One thing that was in the news today was uh, that uh, a group came out and condemned a, a, a family for having Christmas lights. And that uh, Christmas lights are an example of systemic bias. Nice. And so I thought we'd take a moment to just discuss okay, let's unpack that a little you know, bit. this idea and how would he approach that from a presuppositional perspective. Right. Uh, and again, the foundational idea is that everybody has a worldview, mm-hmm. that everybody makes faith-based commitments about what exists, what's right and wrong and how they justify their knowledge of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so everyone has a bias, you know, so there's like mm-hmm. no neutral person out there. Everybody is either the Bible you, says that you're either with me or against me. Right. 
when you say everybody has a bias, is that just another way of saying everybody has presuppositions? Everybody has a worldview. Everybody has foundational commitments that they make at the beginning of their thinking, whether they know it or not. Consciously or, yeah. Whether they know what they are or not, and whether they live them out or not. And what are, if they're not shaped by the Bible, what are those usually shaped by? Uh, Well, one of the biggest ones is human secularism, and that Mm -hmm. is that, uh, you know, the combination of naturalism and evolution, you know, that uh, only the material exists, and we kind of got here by these random chance chance. Uh, processes that, by the way, uh, exceed any probabilistic calculation uh, that you can imagine, but mm-hmm. they still believe in it. Right. Uh, and so, and that. That's that a whole other show, right? To be uh, con- internally consistent, you know, they would have to view everything really from the position of survival of the fittest, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, what is it that's going to improve my reproductive success? You know, that that should be the. Uh, you know, the controlling factor. So, so back to the people who put up Christmas lights, right? And the systemic bias Mm -hmm. that exists, um, help people to look at that presuppositionally, you know, um, what does that statement itself presuppose? So that it's presupposing a right and wrong. It's okay. You know, it's saying that systemic bias is wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And particularly that your systemic bias is wrong. Right. And so you have to have a, an absolute standard for right and wrong, number one. And you have to have a worldview that supports an absolute standard of right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And 4,000 years of secular thought has failed to establish a reasonable and coherent system of good and evil. Mm-hmm. You know, they, you know that, that they can recognize evil and they can recognize good. And they can do things that appear to be good and things that appear to be evil, but they can't not justify their knowledge of those things, uh, you know, with autonomous reasoning. So that's that's one issue. The other issue is that these people who are saying this have a bias. They have a worldview. They have presuppositions. Mm-hmm. And they're wanting to systematize it. They're right. wanting to make it applied to everyone. Mm-hmm. So on the one sense, they're saying it's wrong to have systemic bias. But at the same time, they're saying, I want to impose my systemic bias on you. Mm-hmm. And the nature of that is I'm going to criticize you, humiliate you. And eventually, when I get enough guns, I'm going to come and jam this down your throat. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put you in jail. I'm going to take your resources. I'm going to take your hard-earned money, what's proper to you away from you mm-hmm. because I want to impose my systemic bias on you, mm-hmm. which is the Christian worldview is right now is a, a worldview of persuasion. Mm-hmm. You know, that we aren't telling anybody that they have to put their Christmas lights on. As opposed on. to coercion. As opposed to coercion. You or... know, that the Christian worldview is all about reasoning and reasoning from the scriptures right. uh, to persuade people that God's laws and God's precepts are the best things for them. Mm-hmm. So why, why, why wouldn't these people just allow people to put up lights? You know, And if people want to put up lights, great, go ahead. If people don't want to put up lights, great, well, they're, that's fine too. They're, you know, they start out you know. with, well, let's be neutral. You know, there's this presumed neutrality, you know, Mm -hmm. that their worldview is somehow neutral. But again, the way they live it out, it's not neutral. You know, it's totalitarian. You Mm -hmm. know, eventually, you know, given enough enough, uh, power, 
you know, they will force this down your throat. Mm-hmm. You know, they won't allow you to have Christmas lights because it's systemically biased. So how do you think we could go from a conversation like that to something redemptive? How do we get from there maybe to like the gospel, which is our ultimate finish, finish line, right? Well, I think, I think part of the process is that if we can ask polite questions mm-hmm. that help the unbeliever understand the futility and their irrational, the irrationality of their worldview mm-hmm. and that they can't live by their own precepts then frequently they get uncomfortable right you know because they realize that they're standing on solid sand Mm -hmm. and that they're sinking Mm -hmm. and so what they would like to do is turn the microphone back over to you and ask you about your worldview Mm -hmm. and right you know and then so that's our opportunity you know we want to tell them about our worldview and how it does give us all of these things to make sense of reality about what we ought to do and how we know what we ought to do mm-hmm. and what will happen, you know, where we came from, why we're here, where are we going and what will happen to us after we die? You know, that our worldview gives us answers to that gives us meaning to life. Whereas the secular worldview can't even define the meaning of meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, when they start to talk about meaning, they start to argue about, well, what does meaning actually mean? You know, which basically points out the, the foundational irrationality of their worldview. Right. Right. And one thing, one thing I always try to kind of stress with, with people and even, you know, on this show a lot is, you know, if someone, if you can show someone that they are ultimately believing in something that is contradictory at its core or at its foundation, that should not be a manner in which anyone should want to live. Right. You should not want to live in an irrational, you know, state of mind, right? And if you're believing something that's contradictory, you're basically believing something that's illogical, irrational, and ultimately false, right? If something's contradictory, it cannot be true. And when someone comes to that realization, the right thing to do is to abandon whatever it is that's false or contradictory in nature. Um, But I realize, you know when you do that with people that, you know, just kind of getting them to that point to realize that it's not, you know, a lot of them are just happy (laughs) to continue living in that sort of state of mind. And that's, and that's where, you know, really the spirit of God, you know, needs to be a part of the conversation, the word of God and the spirit of God needs to be kind of brought to bear in these people's lives because ultimately, you know, we could argue, we could persuade, we could reason, mm. but ultimately, you know, our hope has to lie mm. in God working through us, um, doing and those carrying things and bearing that message and bearing the message, which which of brings scripture, me, you know, right? with this morning, uh, we both listened to a critique of presuppositional apologetics, and mm-hmm. it was curious that throughout the entire critique, the Holy Spirit was mentioned. But it was never really mentioned the necessity of the Word of God. So a Reformed apologetic mm-hmm. would understand the necessity of Scripture, you know, the necessity of God's revealed truth uh, in 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 changing the mind of the of the unbeliever. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's both the Spirit and the Word that work together. So 
a presuppositional apologetic is a reformed apologetic, and it recognizes the authority, the necessity, and the sufficiency of Scripture to bring about its purposes. Mm-hmm. You know, that the Word of God, the purposes of the Word of God will be achieved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, we got five minutes left in the show. Um, what? Let's talk a little bit about neutrality. Um, you know, uh, there's. You might come across situations where a a believer or an unbeliever might say, "Hey, you know, you're not allowed to use the Bible. You're not allowed to quote from the Bible, right?" Um, you know, prove to me that God exists or prove to me that Christianity is true, but you can't use the Bible. Like, that's cheating, right? Um, and the idea being that, well, the Bible is biased, right? And if, if you use the Bible, you're not, you're not starting from like a neutral starting point. Um, so let's just unpack a little bit in our last couple minutes here this idea of neutrality. Is there neutrality? And should a Christian... Um, step into the, a position of, you know, perceived neutrality. Is that a good thing, a bad thing? Would you would you endorse that or re- rebuke that? Well, I think that uh, there is no neutrality, you know, that either you're with God or you're against God. Mm-hmm. And so there are either your position is, is biblical theism or it's anti-biblical theism. Mm-hmm. And so that always needs to uh, be brought to bear. Now, there is a part of presuppositional apologetics where you uh, say assume the unbeliever's presuppositions and see where they lead lead you to, mm-hmm. and and that you show them how their presuppositions are inadequate and how they're borrowing from the biblical worldview. They're 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 taking ideas like the validity of the laws of logic, the uniformity of nature. You know that there are true objective rights and wrongs. You know, that you can actually know things. They're borrowing that all from the Christian worldview and that their worldview cannot support those things. Mm-hmm. And so so you're doing essentially an internal critique. You know, you're right. walking into their worldview. You're not being neutral. You're saying, you know, on these anti-theistic presuppositions, but there's no real neutrality. You're either with God or you're against. And that's consistent right. with the laws of logic. There's the law of identity. You know, you're either here or you're there. Mm-hmm. You know, the law of excluded middle. You can't be, uh, uh, you know, you can't be right here and there at the same time. So one one thing our our sound engineer Gabe threw out just now. You know, um, when when someone says prove the Bible without using the Bible, right? Um, you know, what if someone told a scientist, "Hey, prove science without using science," yeah. right? It's kind of like a similar. Prove logic um, yeah. without using logic. Prove logic without without using logic. Yeah, um, you know, prove to me that words exist without using words. Or something. Yeah, and that's one of the criticisms of you know. presuppositional apologetics is that it's question begging or that it's assuming mm-hmm. what it's trying to prove. And at the foundation of everybody's thinking, if you're a rationalist, right. you appeal to rationalism as your ultimate scheme of understanding if you're an empiricist you appeal mm-hmm. to evidence right if you're a an existentialist you're going to appeal to your emotions mm-hmm. if you begin to appeal to something else as a rationalist says well i'm going to appeal to evidence then he's truly an evidentialist right and so you get into this kind of 
idea that um, anyone's the ultimate presupposition of anybody's worldview must be presupposed as a starting point. Um, And so that's a whole other conversation uh, for another time, but I do hear some music. Um, You know, I just wanted to thank Eddie, the good doctor, for being in the studio tonight and discussing this topic. Thanks, Thanks, Eddie. Thank you. Thank you, Jason, for having me. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And thanks, Gabe, Mr. Engineer Man, in studio tonight with us. And thank you for those who called in, those who listened live, and those who will listen to the podcast, uh, which you can catch at apologetics.com or on iTunes podcasts. So until next Friday, this is Jason Gallagher with apologetics.com saying keep the faith.